We're going to be in Second Kings. We're going to close chapter 14. We'll do a little bit of cruising in chapter 15. And it is an important text of scripture. The title is familiar to us only because some of the phrasing is that which we have heard soap operas as the world turns as the sands through the hourglass. And so this is kind of befitting of that in really how long the, uh, the two kings on either side and the lineage thereof have been marked historically on what is this march of time as kings trip and fall. Time marches on as kings trip and fall. And some of the correlation to which I have tried to bring kind of a contemporary comparison with is what we see in our country. When we pick this up today in verse 23 of chapter 14, This is Jeroboam. The name should ring a bell to you because he was the first king given the opportunity to do things right. There was Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam was Solomon's son. He received bad counsel from his peer group. And he chose to disregard also the history of his father to make an historic change to lead Israel forward and out of the quagmire of depravity that Solomon began to put his foot into and lead the others, therefore, into it. So it was taken from him. Jeroboam had that opportunity. They both did. They both squandered it. And so what we see is that the lineage of the kingdoms would be corrupt. And probably, we must say, to the degree of the Assyrian captivity indefinitely. Definitely Israel took a terrible turn and it would cost them the joy and peace and luxury of living in the presence of God, protected by him on all sides. It was going to change everything about their lives. Contemporarily, we can say that as well. We're not doing altogether any better. This was about 149 years after Solomon. They're at about king number 13 on Israel's side. Judah would have less kings doing much more favorably better. There are on this particular side, Israel's side, not one that's listed as good. Pretty much God's punctuating mark to them, evil, 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 evil. It wasn't an evil woman as 
the electric light orchestra sang about. These were evil kings, and there's only one that was documented, and that's Jezebel. She's already been passed up. 149 years, that puts us in contemporary times, roughly from the time our Constitution was instituted. We can kind of see George Washington there and Thomas Jefferson, some of the big founding fathers of our government. But 149 years puts us to Calvin Coolidge, who would have been, I think, the 30th president. And he did a pretty good run in the particular difficulties of reigning in a country that was economically moving quite liberally and unstably. He reined it in, pinched the dollar. He wasn't into programs. He was into simply integrity and moral absolutes. And he wasn't trying to solve problems by dispensing. He was trying to make a difference by pocketing. Hold on to your stuff. Remain content. Work hard. He would be followed by, obviously, one that we do consider in the time that he was president, a great president. That's FDR. Roosevelt. And he did a most excellent job during a very tumultuous time. But I share that with you because in lineage right now, it's pretty amazing that in last time, we've caught up to, in my opinion, these times. We've done wickedly. And the Bible captures that. And the Bible also will say, because of it, these guys are going to get captured. Israel will go first into Assyrian captivity. It'll be brutal. Those are the ten tribes, and they basically, from historical advantage, they disappear. Judah, still having done much better, though, will end up not doing any better. They will have violated a command of God to honor. Certain precepts that were to be blessings had they held on to it. But you'll know that what that leads up to is the time of Daniel when they too will be captured and taken into captivity for 70 years. Don't know what that means for us. I suppose we can be captive in our own land. And I would say that is because if wickedness can prevail, it will capture us. It will imprison us. It will put us into bondage. And these are the things that, as Dennis so rightfully articulated by the emphasis of Jesus, he liberated us from. He doesn't want us to be in bondage. He does not want us to suffer in a lineage of failure spiritually. It always starts there. It's spiritual failure. Spiritual failure leads to every kind of failure that's manifested in society. Dennis honestly humored me when he mentioned, I believe sincerely, but the way Dennis mentions things, it's, I just at times have to laugh. I don't see him as a dumpster diver because he's not that man. He tells me he is. I don't see it. And then I sometimes think, I wonder if I ever dumped yogurt in his dumpster. 
I wonder if I ever contributed to maybe the goodness now that we see in him. Probably not, because I like yogurt. He probably would have been just barely able to get one little fingerful. Sorry about that, Dennis. But isn't that amazing that God saw one person who shares this with us, and he's not that person? Well, any one of these kings could have made a decision to get out of their dumpster, to turn and seek God and in the position of their leadership to effectively change the course of Israel's history. But the reason that they are here is because God says in his word, and we looked at it today in Romans that I had trouble getting bogged down in, is that the very thing that we know we ought to do, we do not do. And it is a result of the human condition of the fallen nature of man. Though my nature is highly spiritual, I'm vulnerable to being just like one of these kings. So what I do is I check in at least once a week, twice a week for sure, because I teach in the midweek. And I'm here with great frequency in the morning to check in with Jesus, who is my king, so that I do not become his king. I have an opportunity to change every day the course of my life so that it is not a ultimate footstep that is my last step when I'm simply trying to make a progress that God already has established, this time that marches on and that ultimately I am a part of. I'm one person a part of it, as you are. So that's kind of your narrative right now. It lets you know that we're really not doing that well. We should be. We should be smarter than that. And I say this collectively as terms of a governing country that has become highly secular and hedonistic and humanistic. And we're not doing well because we've failed in one, acknowledging the God who has blessed us, the nation by whom we have received the very words that I'm holding and that we've walked through many years now. This month is our 12th year as a church, talking to a pastor yesterday evening who is connecting with us because his concept of a college of ministry, a school of ministry is what he has started. We both had the same desire put on our hearts with regard to a Bible college. He's interested in what you guys are doing, and I'm interested in what he's doing. But he's in his 18th year, and he's speaking of great revival. Okay, we're in our 12th. Let's speak about great revival so that we are moving beyond just simply survival. It's got to start by the choices that we make. Let's go ahead and enter into this, and we will see this concept that will also be documented in the book of James. Jeroboam, in the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. 
so their reigns were substantial unless by disease or demise they no longer could rule. Disease was potential. Demise generally was the rule of thumb. If you didn't live to old age, it's because you got picked off by somebody of a younger age. They didn't like you. They were in the lineage to supplant you, and so you were taken out. There were kings that were murdered. There were those who had coups forged against them. David knew what that was like. There were some guys downline from him that thought, thought that worked pretty good. The Absalom syndrome, sit at the gates, take the people's requests, change things behind the king's back, promise them everything in spite of what the king has been noted for, do better than he did in giving out. You know, David was a king who shared his wealth, and he was one that saw that the people would get cakes of raisins and figs and meat and bread to celebrate their walk with God, to celebrate their national unity as a believing people in God. We don't do that so much. We usually get a bill in April that says, thank you, give generously. That's the IRS. And there's nothing wrong supporting our government except when our government doesn't support God. There's a problem there. And God knows how to sort out what is an academic or fiduciary obligation imposed upon us. I'm not suggesting anything of violating the tax code. Because one way or the other, there are advantages that have worked out for us in it. But when our nation asks of us finances, and we see that those finances go to things that are completely contrary to God's will, it is a step that's not in sync with the footstep of faith that God has desired for us to take. And so here's what we have in verse 24. Remember, about 149 years after Solomon, this is all we have to say about this guy and the direction for Israel. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the, sons of, the son of Nabat, who had made Israel sin. He's likened to the first wouldn't that be great if our politicians were likened to the first, to a George Washington, a Thomas Jefferson? That would be awesome if they mimicked in heart and spirit, even if some of them have not been cited as being deeply, authentically Christian, which again, I would stand to say that's more of a bias than a fact. Their writings have revealed that they were indeed believers and trusted in the providential hand of God in how they won against a force, a world force at that time that seemingly could have put them under. No problem. Thirteen colonies and England decides to send their best suited warriors. But God did 
prevail on behalf of the United States and through men who truly had no problem hitting their knees, folding their hands, praying and journaling. It was an amazing thing that was done when our men at that time said, we're not going to consent anymore to the hand of Great Britain stealing our liberty, robbing us of joy, imposing themselves on us, because those men also saw that the kingship there took a greater precedent than what their hearts said their king was, Jesus. Their Lord is Jesus. The reason and purpose that the pilgrims advanced here even before them, because they wanted liberty to worship God, not worship anything, not to worship trees in the forest, not to worship animals that graze, not to worship the sun, but to look at the Son of God. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. And that's a pretty telling statement. I know you can see me. What are you going to do about it? That's kind of the imagery. In the sight of God, aware that he was being observed by the Lord, not caring at all. Verse 25, and this is going to be one of those marks of grace by God allowing someone like him, who is evil, to remain in place long enough for God to do good. Sometimes the Lord permits a sinister person to remain in a position temporarily so that God can be seen coming alongside and doing good, even if it is to show his mercy when judgment was necessary. Some people learn by seeing the mercy of God demonstrated towards someone who deserves the judgment of God. And what God is saying, in spite of what that guy's doing in the position that he's holding, I'm going to show my love and not my wrath. Wrath has been suspended for a season that we enjoy right now as a church called Grace. And though there is the persecuted church, the reason that we're able to enjoy this day right now, this morning, is because it is evidence that in a small, if you would, tiny space on this earth, God's graciously allowing us to gather. Others may not have that. We may not have it, but we have it today. God has allowed that to take place. We're in one of the most liberal states in the United States. Don't be offended if you're blue. Just find a different song to sing. Song, song, blue, everybody knows one. <laughs> Neil Diamond. But I don't sing blue songs. When I come here and hear worship songs, my colors change and I'm colorblind. I see things far differently. But he restored the territory of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah according to what? The word of the Lord, God of Israel, which he had spoken through his servant Jonah, the son of Amittal, the prophet, 
who was from Gath, Hefer. And so one of the things you need to know is that Jonah's on the scene. He's got his own story. But he's one of the prophets that's on the scene right now. And he'll have in his time his own wrestlings with honoring God in a time in which God's grace is desiring to be manifested through a word of repentance. And he knows the heart of God and it bugs him that God would prove to be charitable to the enemies of Israel. You know the story. But it's important to see that on the scene, the voice of the prophets are resonating the heart of God. That's why when you hear on broadcasts, through the music medium, wasn't that a great song, by the way, that was on the background there? Did you hear that song? Oh, he is good. He is good. I love that song. In fact, part of me just had to, I had to just kind of simmer down going, Lord, that could have been my song. Well, it is my song, but I wish I would have written the song because it's exactly the way I feel. And so that song, it's a prophetic song. It testifies of God's goodness, his generosity. And so God is showing that he's retaking territory even through a very despicable person. And it doesn't mean that the despicable person gets the accolades. It's acknowledging that God in this season, when that guy is predicated on demise and wickedness and compromise, the Lord's doing something behind him. It's seemingly with him, but it's doing something that's protecting a greater work. He had spoken this. For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, and whether bond or free, there was no helper for Israel. The Lord takes notice when seemingly there is no one of strength or heart to do what's needed to be done. He's our helper. What do we know? In Acts, he sent the comforter, the paraclete, the one that comes alongside of us. And not only does the Holy Spirit come alongside of us, he comes within us and he comes upon us. We have at our disposal in the triunity of God, the Lordship of Jesus, who as the son who died in our place is our intercessor. When charges are levied against us by Satan, he completely disregards it in representing us before the Father. And the Father only sees us as he sees his son. And in what Jesus satisfied on the cross and coming from the grave, he was able to impart by the residency of the Holy Spirit that we have received, we're not the same. We may have dived into the dumpster. We may occasionally find snack foods in life's dumpster, but we are not that same person because deep in our heart, God has transacted something within us that says feet back on the path. Time is short. Move. Accomplish. Be what you can be in the season that you are here. Let the results be mine. And so I like that. God does see the affliction of Israel presently. 
If you have to be a student of warfare, they are the ones to study. It does not mean there will not be casualties, but they truly are a people that desire to limit casualties. That is a fact. And we as a nation, too, took a lot of losses in our ambition to limit innocent casualty. It happens. That is what is hard about warfare. And very often it is politics that get in the way of that very thing. The successful elimination of an enemy that's intention is to take the citizenry of an opposing force and what we would say is a godly force and to cause utter demise. One of the things that you do need to understand is that there is a force out there that is highly manipulated and contrary to everything that God stands for. And I am not embarrassed to say it. I say it with clarity. When you hear Islam, it is the worship of Allah who is not God. There's no comparison. There's no relatability that they claim to have with Jesus. They have only one claim that they can make historically and biologically, and that is back to Abraham. Abraham would admit it. Yep, I goofed. The sands of time, I was following them, and time got a little bit late, so I took counsel in the wrong way. I took on a woman I shouldn't have taken on by a counsel that I shouldn't have listened to. I had a kid, Ishmael. He was a donkey of a kid. And he kicked me in the chops. And every nation thereafter, God said that that would be true. But it is interesting. God knew that Ishmael would be a problem. And the problem ultimately was by the disobedience of Abraham because God said, you're going to have a son. When? When it's too old for you to take credit for it. When it's too old for Sarah to boast in anything and anyone but me, and certainly not you. You're not going to receive credit. I love you, Abraham, but the bottom line is you're going to be a geezer. You'll have nothing to validate the fact that through you and with your wife, about 10, 11 years, his junior, I'm going to give you something to laugh at and to laugh with me over, Isaac. But he went ahead. And so the Middle East is the result of God's patience with his boo-boo. And you know what he's going to do still? He's going to touch as many hearts and Arabia and all of those Middle Eastern nations as he can. And in the event you didn't know it, God is at work behind the scenes. And Arabic nations are getting saved. And they're turning from Allah. The reason that I bring, again, Allah up is that it's linked to what is a faith. It is the Muslims. Their commitment to Allah is what the believer, you and I's commitment is to Jesus Christ. But they're not the same God. And they don't have the same intention or outcome. To a Muslim whose practicum is Islam, it is utter destruction of 
a Gentile people, those who are outside of Islam are not worth anything. If they will not submit, they die. It's an evil religion. Though there are Christians who can behave sinisterly and wickedly, we are not an evil faith. We are a saving faith because of God. And Israel is not an evil nation, though their practicum here was evil through kings that violated God. The citizenry as a whole was not. It's just that they lived in the consequences of it. The affliction was seen, and the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. What is being said by Hamas and Hezbollah? Blot them out. What's being said by the world? Blot them out. Take them out. You realize that right now there is a movement to compel the Jews to cease and desist, and there is also a vocal movement to bring back the haunting imagery of the Holocaust by Hitler to annihilate them. Crazy. It's utter evil, and it is a satanic work. There's no one who could be doing better strategically, militarily, and honorably than them. And the casualties with what has been done are minimal. They are. I think it's like 500 that they can count of innocent citizenry, if that is true. If that is true. And that's rather unprecedented. Don't even know what the percentage would be. And the world is asking them to give land to an enemy that actually is on God's land. And so it does say this, he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. He's just saying he did it through this bad guy. It doesn't mean it's a compliment to the bad guy. And now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam and all that he did, his might, how he made war, how he recaptured for Israel from Damascus and Hamath what had belonged to Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jeroboam, it says, rested with his fathers, the kings of Israel. Then Zechariah, his son, reigned in his place. The rest moves through again other kings that are coming. In particular, chapter 15 will mark itself with a king called Uzziah. He actually did good. But Uzziah is on Judah's side. And on that side, kings did much better. Uzziah is going to have a problem, though, in his walk towards his latter days. His problem is that he's going to want to do more and be more than God permitted him to be. With that, I want to take you to a passage of Scripture that in principle allows us to kind of see how all of this lineage of kings that are failing and why they failed. And so in the book of James, chapter 4, you might be able to see what it is we're seeing 
epidemically in the global scene, and then we'll be through. This is your principle that you can refer back to when we hit 15 and 16 and 17 and 18, because the repetition the same, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord, evil in the sight of the Lord, evil in the sight of the Lord, wickedness. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? That which wars in the member of the carnal man will be expressed in wars that are created one nation against another. When you are at war within your members, that means not any longer spiritually governed, then you will become a warlord. That's not a nation that's taking defense of their populace, which is what Israel has always been, defenders. When God initially said, you will take out the evil from before my face, that's what they were to do, and that was God's assignment to them. Most of the time, they did good, but usually they fell a little bit short, which left enough evil to be not only nuisances, but ultimately seductresses to them as nations later on. God doesn't like evil to be around that potentially corrupts the innocent. You lust, verse 2, and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. James is writing, by the way, to the church. Can the church be at war? Yes. Can the consequences be as bad? Yes. But the parallel here is that war is war. We fight a war that's spiritual. Israel is fighting a war that is highly spiritual, but to them it's physical right now. It's a national stand against wickedness that for 20 years being embellished in good faith by nations around the world, billions and billions of dollars that went into infrastructure and weapons of warfare and scheming ultimately an attack that was forged October 7th. If you have not seen Amir Safati's uh, website, or that's, um, that's website, that's not correct. What's the term? Telegram. Yeah, you, could, you ought to look at it. But the documentation of the strategy behind that attack is not only proven, it was presented at the UN. And the UN, by the way, has proven that at least 12 of their administrative higher-ups were involved physically in that attack. Evil. How's it coming? Because of carnal intentions. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your pleasures. Verse 14, or excuse me, verse 4 describes for this audience, as James was addressing, adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It doesn't mean you can't be friendly in the world. It means you're not to unite with them in a manner in which your love for God and his friendship with you is not separated. That's why 
when we come here, I assure you, if in humility, in honesty, you have transacted as Dennis was leading us through and you're just talking things over with God, you leave here guilt-free. I don't care how bad your week was or how bad you were in your week. You leave guilt-free. You don't have to wear that because God robes you in his righteousness. You're no longer bound to the transaction of the transgression. You're free. Oh, it might take you a while to get your friendship back with someone, your communication repersonated with your spouse. It may take a little while to have a comfortable seat, but the best seat you ever took was before his throne, receiving his counsel, entering into worship, saying, this is what I need to do. There's a lot of stuff that's going to happen next week. Somebody's going to be God over somebody's life. <laughs> I don't know what football team, because I'm not there, but I say, if you got to do the Super Bowl, have a super day in church first, and then it'll make a lot funner praying for your team. Your game will go a lot better even if you lose. Because you go, you know what? At least I got chips and avocado in this one. Or do you think that the scriptures say in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives, notice this, more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble counsel for the world, counsel for North Korea, for Russia, counsel, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, counsel for Hamas, Hezbollah, therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. The world needs to do that to experience God's mercy and grace, which is available, turning from wickedness.